other left-wing movements. And as long as there is a, like, you know, put your money where your mouth is in terms of, like, actual left unity. And, like, because I'm just thinking in terms of, like, theory and cybernetic stuff, you kind of can't just have the system four and five, right? I don't know. Maybe you do need, like, actual operating theaters that don't just engage in, like, you know, solely political endeavors. You would uh -huh. need to tie that with, like, other things, whether that's just like, I mean, basic community organizing or whatever. I mean, I feel like this was the crux of our sort of discussion around the viable systems model of, like, how much pluralism, but also how do you ensure yeah. that the, the, the purpose of our hypothetical communist party, I suppose, remains revolutionary? Um, yeah. Anyway, I don't know what anyway. the answer is to that. <laughs> anyway. Somebody, hopefully, somebody figures yes. it out. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my general. That's my general frustration about like social democratic politics. On one hand, is that it's it focuses its way. It's just the politics. It focuses just on the politics. And then my frustration with like left communist politics, like councilists, a lot of the councilists, like it's just the economics, and that falls back on a kind of fatalism, you know, of like, well. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen, Mag but it's like, give me answers now. Moment's gonna come and <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, the magical political moment, that's also like social Democrats also believe in like a magical political moment when suddenly everyone's going to flip the switch and be like, I should be a communist now. That's so true. So I don't know. I don't know. Pessimism, Dan, you were right. I'm just a pessimist. <laughs> having a very pessimistic day. <laughs> it's because I have to get on a fucking plane flight here tomorrow. And I'm just like, everything yeah. is horrible. What are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, dear but i yeah um, i guess the um i guess the answer is so long as you don't ally yourself too closely with post-imperial developmentalist regimes particularly <laughs> of a sort of like uh, arabic nationalist nature yeah, i will be starting the green army when i go back to america wow okay fbi if you hear that i'm not gonna be doing that i'll just be shot as soon as i get off the plane <laughs> hmm in my um, in, in my experience, like if you take a color and then put the name, like the idea of army <laughs> behind it, what it invokes for me is just like the fan base for a political for a football team that plays in that color. Like that's <laughs> it's like quite a common sort of like football chant it would be like X color army. Anyway, <laughs> we'll be drawing our soldiers from Manchester City. Is what yeah, we'll be doing. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, Dan, bit of banner before we start. Um, mm -hmm. I figured in a very funny way, I mentioned this to you yesterday, in a very funny way, the idea of universal conscription has like reared its head in, in, a, in a very like interesting, funny way in the American left. Because recently, like some Marxists got elected to um, some like national political body of the DSA. Woohoo, well done, everybody. Good job there. We did it. That's um, actually very awesome. Good for them. Congratulations. But the program for like the Marxist Unity Group or whatever, I suppose, involves like universal conscription because it's like this, like McNairist, like you know, general. Like we've come across this idea before. Dan and I have talked about it before. But that means that that idea has been like exposed to uh, broader portions of the social democratic left and perhaps they're more like progressive and like right wing, not right wing, but you know, like left liberal variants. And I've seen a lot of people on Twitter being like, what the fuck? How could anybody vote for these people? They want everybody to be in the army. And so I thought that it would be a very good time just at the beginning to return to this idea of universal conscription <laughs> and their ideas on it, because it is, 
like most things on the Marxist left, like named so terribly. <laughs> Maybe not named terribly. It's very literal, but it's just like named in a way to just scare liberals. You know what I mean? And I did really enjoy seeing this happen. Um, but I will say, you know, again, we've talked about this on, on the show before. If any of these liberals want to put their money where their mouth is and have a criticism of police and the military that isn't just one of like, we can reform them and we can make them good and we'll just cut away some of their funding and we'll just replace them with, you know, like the good cops or like little technocratic tweaks of like make them live in the areas where they police or something like that. If you actually want to draw that to its logical conclusion, you're going to wind up coming to something like universal conscription in which everybody is just engaged in, you know, the functioning and running of their society in a democratic way. But um, yeah, I don't know. I wanted to get your thoughts on that again, because I thought it was so funny. <laughs> yeah, you, you raised this with me yesterday, and I had no idea it had been happening, mostly, I think, because I don't use Twitter. And even when I tried <laughs> to sort of do some research into this yesterday to see what I would say, um, I really couldn't find anything to, <laughs> to draw on. Um, I mean, it's, I, I, I do also appreciate the image that it invokes in my head of like, that immediate shock and revulsion and sort of like hand wringing and also the kind of like it it speaks um quite a lot to the sort of like that element of the discourse that happens at the moment whereby you sort of like find the most dramatic or the thing that's going to be the most revolt not revulsive exactly just the thing that's going to create the sort of like internet sort of like pitchfork flash mob kind of thing um and then everybody like it, it's 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 interesting what's just, what would have just happened is a sort of collective no individual person has invoked this probably it's just sort of like been a collective everybody's trained to find that kind of trigger point and then sort of like um and then go after it i mean it's really it is interesting like i suppose also it does tell us some informative things by which i mean that this element of a program is part of a much broader program right and i would imagine any element in well i would say any element in a sort of like socialist or communist program well in a, in a communist program taken out of perspective is always going to seem a bit strange and jarring and without the context of a total overthrow of the state a, so a total revolutionary transformation of um the state from a bourgeois one to a proletarian one uh no transitional demand is going to um have much bearing to anyone but, but least of all people not versed in that language and so in some ways it's a, it, it, depending on um how the um marxist unity group now sort of leveraged that this drama it's a good opportunity for them to say well no this is what this means in the context of this and as you say here are the problems that it invokes with uh maybe a liberal position on what to do with the army or what to do with the police and um i, I mean as the listeners well know it's always been a fascination of mine the L, the the existence in program communist programs from 100 years ago of this element of like a universal arming of the people kind of thing dissolve the army mobilize popular militias that kind of thing which um maybe with my sort of like post-liberal brain i have a similar sort of like oh this is quite shocking but also like i find it quite fun and quite interesting and it um compels me to think more around um 
what a revolutionary transition would mean. So I sympathise with um, uh, the liberal Twitter user who's just come across this idea. <laughs> it's and, like, uh, ah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it, that's just the way... That's the way of trying to explain anything to liberals. And I don't mean that in a like, you stupid liberal, I look down on you kind Some, of way. Sometimes when he says liberal, he means that. But this so is most of the time, 90% of the time, <laughs> that's what I mean. But not right now. Just because like, unless you, this is why it's so difficult to, shut up. This is why it's so difficult to explain any Marxist or socialist idea to a liberal. Because you kind of have to have this like critique of the entire system and without it, these are just going to seem like weird floating, like, wait, you want to abolish the Supreme Court and the Senate, but then what are you going to replace it with? You want to get rid of money? That's the one that I, whenever I just want to like end a conversation about politics with liberals, I just say, well, we'll just get rid of money. And they go, huh? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, yeah, without and then any you, of that. And you decide whether you want to try and get into a discussion about like the value form and well, how... exactly it literally always comes down to the value form and it's like i sound like an asshole and i'm not gonna be able to explain marx's value theory right now <laughs> like... yeah but i also don't want to be the person that just tells people to read capital and then come back to... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> read capital and then come back to me they're like i will not be doing that <laughs> yeah i don't know what mm -hmm. are you gonna do mm -hmm. anyway universal conscription also, I think scary to some Marxists just because it's it, it does sound very top-down, top-heavy, because the the implication of the word conscription is that you're being conscripted, I think, into like a – to some people, you're being conscripted into like the state's army and not necessarily like the people's army, which I think is a totally fair criticism if that's one that you have. But like, um, <laughs> Because you, you only know. have to look at the history of people's armies yeah, exactly. realize <laughs> the degree to which they usually become uh, – yeah. bourgeois or otherwise state armies rather than totally uh, like proletarian ones yeah totally so yeah no yeah. answers here other than yeah. that like yeah people should be organizing their own like i mean policing is even the wrong word right people should just be organizing themselves um and the only way to really do that is to give everybody like equal power in in doing it and i think you only really have to look at like <laughs> the like moderate reforms that liberals have attempted of police departments in America and the police department's reactions to see that like, this is really the only way that you're ever going to fix this for good. Right. Because cops will not allow themselves to be disbanded without a fight, let alone the military. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, it is, it is quite a fun way to think about disbanding the cops is just making everybody a cop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what if everybody was a what cop? If, yeah. <laughs> yes galaxy yeah. brain take yeah difficult i will say though difficult thing to discuss and god bless those marxists in the dsa for uh attempting to do so on a national stage because like shit i'm just talking to you and i can barely explain <laughs> <laughs> yes that's why we're not seeking election to any positions not yet import or otherwise <laughs> not yet i will announce my presidential campaign here soon enough <laughs> Um, okay, that's enough on the cops, Dan. Um, we're recording. We never do this. We're recording in the morning, which feels very weird. Mm -hmm. And we're also recording like a week after we recorded last time because I'm going away. You're going away. So we got to get these kind of backdated. There might still not be an episode next time. Well, I, we'll oh, see. yeah, no, I thought I worked it out and it would be fine. And actually, I realized that maybe it won't. <laughs> what but I was there thinking, is, there is the prospect of us recording an episode together in person. Which, that would um, be good. Which might happen. And then going and playing a game of Kill Team. Oh, the yeah, perfect evening podcasting <laughs> and Kill Team. Just like the good old days. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, <laughs> you know what I was thinking we could do for our next episode? Not really an episode. We've both seen Oppenheimer now, right? We could have mm. a like two month too late discussion of Oppenheimer. <laughs> <laughs> and just put that out. We'll yeah, 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 yeah. There might be a little short 20 minute. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah, we could yeah. do that. We could do that. We might have to record that immediately after this, though. So. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Oh, yeah, that's right. When do you go away? We can talk about this later. Oh, next so, day anyway, yeah. Okay. No, a week. Okay, a week. Okay, interesting. We'll sort it out. <laughs> we'll talk. <laughs> we'll make this work. My people we'll will talk to your people. <laughs> yes. um, okay, to get to it, Dan, what did we read this week? I, I texted you a couple days ago when I finished it, and I said that I had a sneaking suspicion that you made me read a communizer again. You tricked me into doing it, and you responded with, oh, no, I don't think so. I think he's a Bordinkist. <laughs> <laughs> Although there's a point in the introduction to this where he's talking about um, contacts he has with groups in Turkey. Mm. Um, And uh, when he was trying to research this topic, um, he was in communications with friends of his from the International Communist Tendency, which is like a LEFCOM international grouping of LEFCOM groups, I think, um, (laughs) who I've often, I've always assumed were Bordigas. And then he said... or similar left communists, not com, not um, maybe like I don't know. Maybe I should have just read their program before we talked about this. But anyway, <laughs> let's anybody from the international communist tendency, like, let me know. Um, yeah. uh, who who he disavows like in a in a comical way. He's like not necessarily like uh, fellow travelers of mine, or not necessarily somebody I'd identify with. So. Maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe he is, maybe he isn't. I'm not he's, really He seems friendly. He doesn't seem yeah. like he's a jerk from this yeah. introduction. He could, <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, what did we read, Dan? I, what I enjoyed you, this. Yeah, what is this essay called? I can't remember. You tell oh. me. Uh, it's got a long name, Socialism in One Country Before Stalin and the Origins of Reactionary Anti-Imperialism, The Case of Turkey, 1917 to 1925. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, I can't really remember how I stumbled across this. I think I was exploring texts on left communism and bodyism, as I just said, as you just said, and <laughs> came across this essay uh, or this book rather that's part of the historical materialism book series by Lorne Goldner, um, which is a collection of essays, um, one on Russia, one on Spain, one on Turkey, and one on the revolutionary history of Bolivia in the middle of the last century, I think. Um, the generals, I think it, I think it was published about a decade ago, although this essay was written, I think a decade before that, perhaps. Um, the general, I really quite enjoyed the introduction of the book. It's kind of like, a. it's still, it's still slightly in the age of, Oh, here we are in the wacky age of postmodernism. And actually, um, there is still value in thinking about the, political agency of the working class and what they might be able to achieve and sort of avowing uh, core Marxist um, commitments. So there is kind of like a brief declaration of those kind of uh, a fidelity to sort of those core Marxist tenants. Um, and then, as I say, these four essays sort of explore uh, somewhat untold um, or unfamiliar um periods of international socialist history that might challenge in some way or other the sort of accepted understanding or wisdom of whatever the topic of the essay is and in this instance it's um the sort of like soviet union's relationship to uh 
post-colonial regimes, development, sort of economic developmental regimes, which um, sort of like play off both sides of the um, the Cold War, have some kind of um, uh, rhetorical socialist or communist commitment sometimes when it suits them, uh, but in other occasions perhaps are sort of benefiting the sort of development of their national um, political interests or the development of their nascent bourgeoisie. Uh, and in this case, we're talking about Turkey. Um, the thing about this essay, which sort of challenges common wisdom, is that um, what it identifies is tendencies and themes and um, approaches to um, international relations taken by the Soviet Union, which might seem more familiar to a sort of post-World War II world or even like a, the world of the 1960s and the relationship to uh, Vietnam and other sort of like African post-colonial conflicts. But here we're actually talking about Turkey and the immediate aftermath of this, the the First World War and the um, the Russian Revolution and how a lot of those traits that would become very familiar to our understanding of the Soviet Union are actually present at this very early period of their history. Yeah, he at one point he's like, if what I have to say is true, this will be a theoretical bombshell for the West. <laughs> and I was, I was, I was kind of waiting for the bombshell. Yeah, it seems yeah, to me yeah, that yeah, it's just never... like the Soviet Union was acting like a state. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, that's like okay. I'm not yeah. too surprised by that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a, almost like just like a tradi traditional left wing, like anarchist or left com approach. Okay, the the revolutionary wave that preceded 1917 actually broke very early he sort of i think he talks about kronstadt and like the early 1920s when the soviet union really have to has to switch into this isolationist mode give up on the prospect of global or Euro wider european revolution and sort of like become a geopolitical player like any other um and uh make less than sort of like solidaristic political decisions when it comes to their relationships to uh, sort of post-colonial re regimes and sort of accept a certain amount of poor treatment of those regimes, internal communist and socialist movements. Yeah. Yeah. This is like a kind of real politique thing that's kind of going on where yeah. it's like they were thrust in thrust into having to deal with like, um, you know, being a real player on the world stage. And then having done that, all of a sudden they had to start making concessions and they, you know, he does kind of trace it back to the German revolution not working and, um, and like you say, Kronstadt. So. I, think, I think as you say, there is something wholly unsurprising about this. Yeah. I, I, I similarly was sort of waiting for the kind of like mic drop <laughs> moment, which never really came. It was just like, so it's, it's kind of like a fascinating history. Um, and you sort of, you can, it's clear the critique he's making, but it's never really like explicated in a in a final paragraph that you might want to read out at the end of the podcast episode to explain everything you know. <laughs> yeah what the hell yeah. <laughs> written in a, written in a confusing way i will just yeah. come out and say that because like he has at the end in his favor he has a timeline of turkey's history with communism right and i went and read that first so i was uh, like a little bit better 
uh adapted to his writing style but his writing style is like this thing happened in 1921 oh but remember that guy that that thing happened to in 1921 well here he is in 1919 but then here he is in 1923 and it's just like wait a minute is he dead did he get murdered what's happening there'd be a a reference to some historical event happening in the timeline of one (laughs) section and then it's like but reference will be made to that later and then it dials back to uh, six months or a year or whatever and then gives you an explanation of this person who was then defeated when you read it a few paragraphs before. Yeah, yeah. It assumes a certain amount of knowledge about Turkey, which I, and Turkey's history, which I certainly don't have. And I think even if you did have it, he's attempting to basically say, you know, uh, uh, everything he thought about Turkey was wrong. Everything he thought about their history is wrong. So it was a bit confusing. <laughs> Can I tell you the thing that was most confusing to me? I don't know whether you can <laughs> oh. across this. I don't know whether it's some kind of like convention that I just don't understand. But it, I mean, it re- relates, relates to Kamal Ataturk, right? Um, Mustafa Kamal Pasha. Pasha. Kamal Pasha, uh, yeah. Pasha. And uh, like sometimes he refers to him as Mustafa Kamal and sometimes as yeah, Kamal Pasha. And they can be <laughs> like, or, like one sentence will precede another or one paragraph will precede another and there'll just be a different... It, t- it took me till most of the way through reading this to realize that these were references to one person. And, and once then there was I a guy named it was Mustafa all Sufi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, Mustafa Sufi is like a leader of the Communist Party, and there's also Enver Pasha, who yeah. is a member of the Young Turks, and a sort of like rival of Ataturk. So I don't know. I did have to look the biggest up problem Pasha, was man. the proper names. Yeah, um, the proper names were very confusing. <laughs> I and and just all of the different communist parties that showed up. But we'll we'll get to all yeah. of that. Pasha is Pasha, as far as I can tell, is basically the equivalent of. A rough equivalent of like sir or like a nice title that you give okay, someone when they've done that's, something. This is why it's this is why yeah. I was confused. Yeah. Yeah. And then Ataturk, I guess, is I think just means like yeah, great like Turk. father of Turkey. Something yeah, like yeah. Turkey's father. I will yeah, okay, we'll get to it. Enver Pasha comes across in like an incredibly funny person. <laughs> he is just like running around, failed a million times in World War One, attempted to do a coup, failed, ran away to like I think Uzbekistan tried to do a coup and then was killed by the Bolsheviks. <laughs> like, oh what a life. What are these guys? Huh? What are you gonna do? Um so just to get us in the kind of mindset of what we're talking about, he's kind of writing in a milieu this was written relatively recently he's writing in a milieu though where this idea of anti-imperialism as its own ideology is like back right and i'm just going to read two paragraphs where he kind of explains this because it is it sets us up for exactly what we're going to be talking about he says the anti-imperialist ideology of the 60s and 70s died a hard death by the late 1970s western leftist cheerleaders for ho 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 chi Minh in london paris berlin and new york fell silent as vietnam invaded cambodia China invaded Vietnam, the Soviet Union threatened China, and then China allied with the U.S. against the Soviets in the new Cold War, and all of the other national liberation movements that had taken power in Algeria, and then in Ethiopia, Angola, Mozambique, and Ibisau, all disappointed. Then he says, today, a vague mood of anti-imperialism is back, led by Venezuela's Chavez and his Latin American allies in Cuba, Nicaragua, Ecuador, and Bolivia, and more or less all of them with the exception of Stalinist Cuba, are classically bourgeois nationalist regimes. But Chavez, in his turn, is allied, at least verbally and often practically, with the Iran of the Ayatollahs and Hezbollah and Hamas, as well as newly emergent China, which no one 
uh, well, I don't know about this. He says, no, no one any longer dares to call socialist. I'm going to need a bit of a citation on that one because I think there are some people that would still do that. The British SWP allies with Islamic fundamentalists in local elections in the UK and participates in mass demonstrations during the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in the summer of 2007, chanting, we are all Hezbollah. Somehow Hezbollah, whose statues affirm the truth of the protocols of the elders of Zion, are now a part of the left. When will it be? We are all the Taliban. And why not? Indeed. So he's basically saying, why is there this tendency on the left to go to kind of ally, at least in rhetoric, with regimes that are clearly reactionary, but they're reactionary in a way that is like anti-America or anti-European imperialism, right? And so people just get confused because they say, well, they're against the great Satan. They're against the biggest capitalist powers on the planet. So they must be good. And they call themselves socialists. So they must be good. You know, there are some socialists that get so confused that during the war in Ukraine, they wound up somehow giving some slack to Russia because they're like, well, they're just doing anti-imperialism. They're just fighting back against the imperialist NATO. So they must be doing something right. And it's just like, take a step back. You don't need you don't need to support Putin. You don't need to support Chavez. You, it's like you don't have to do any of this. You know, it's funny because it's like when you talk about liberals with the Soviet Union, like when I talk about the Soviet Union with other communists, I'm, I'm like, you know, hey, yeah, the Soviet Union, it's a bummer. It, it failed. And you really get into the nitty gritty. But like when you talk about it with a liberal, it's like hands off the fucking Soviet Union, buddy. Like, let me explain to you why you can't <laughs> criticize it. Only I can, you know. So basically... To sum it all up, he's tying this all together to basically say that this is where this ideology of reactionary anti-imperialism comes from. It has its origins in Turkey in the early like aftermath of World War One. Um, it's fascinating. Mm. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a. Uh, it's all, I mean, it's, I'm glad that you bring up the case of um, Ukraine and Russia because I was sort of thinking there's a degree to which this kind of anti-imperialist thinking doesn't really have the hold on the left that it used to and i think perhaps and perhaps it, it it doesn't in the way that it used to in the beginning of this decade this century rather just because the left was so marginalized in a way that um the sort of like i know i, I know what we're, i'm talking about a very very vague notion of the left right but the sort of like the experience of sanders and corbyn has kind of like um uh changed our sort of approach to left-wing politics a little bit although i suppose it's interesting to bring up that reference to hezbollah and how corbyn was always tarred as a, as a su supposed supporter of hezbollah kind of thing um so his connections to that sort of period of history and the uh the support or the sort of like the degree to which anti-imperialism uh informed um a significant period of uh Western socialist politics, particularly around the the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and the war on terror, um, is still quite a lingering history. I do find that one pretty hilarious where there's kind of like, we have to support Russia. And I'm like, Russia's not even the Soviet Union anymore. Yeah, like, I know. I mean, exactly. Just like thought, thoughtlessly defending the Soviet Union was like probably bad enough, but now that it doesn't even exist. It's like, we're not even in a cold, like... We can't. We don't even nominally. We as socialists and communists don't even nominally have a side in a non-existent Cold War that's supposedly happening. But you know, well, yeah, I wasn't even alive when the Soviet Union fell. But it's like, imagine saying that to a communist 
back when the Soviet Union fell and in the aftermath of that, when like people were going hungry and all of these like horrible economic problems were happening, it's like, oh, in like 20, 30 years, like uh, there's going to be sects of the left that actually support this class of people because they're doing anti-imperialism. We'd just be like, what the fuck? <laughs> like these people that just sold off all of the Soviet Union's wealth for personal gain. Like that's pretty brutal. What are you going to do? Yeah. Um. Is it, what is it? What? Just on a side note, British SWP siding with Islamic fundamentalists in local election in the UK. Is that something you know about? Um, I don't know whether anybody. I couldn't identify a case where somebody was very explicitly identified as an, an uh, Islamic fundamentalist. Um, okay. but the the British SWP. And I think the like other sort of like sects on the left um, in that period of time were um, of, for, of sort of for uh, reasons related to the ongoing um, war on terror were very friendly with the British Muslim community. I think, um, and there were there are lots of parts of the UK where there's lots of Muslim representation on local councils because the populations of those regions of the UK have quite a high Muslim composition um, or sort of like, or rather, um, uh, don't, I don't want to use, um, not just expand, expanding Muslim to mean beyond maybe the just a religious group. So I'm trying to find some other words, people of sort of like South Asian heritage, I suppose. Mm. Um, so that was very definitely a thing that was happening uh, around the end of the aughts in the UK. I don't really know how far it went, so I can't really substantiate the idea that it was um, supportive of fundamentalists. Although, I mean, it, I mean, uh, it almost it would not surprise me. It would not surprise me. Although it's ironic, right? Isn't it like support for um, sort of like fundamentalists or otherwise sort of um muslim or arabic nationalists in the uk representing uh a sort of like blow against the great imperial satan in the us or the uk um doesn't seem to make a lot of sense right maybe 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 in some sort of wider logic there is sense to supporting hezbollah or i don't know some other fundamentalist group in um in the Middle East for anti-imperialist purposes, maybe they make sense, but um, supporting exponents of that ideology in the UK or America or somewhere else in the West, um, it seems unlikely that it's going to achieve anything particularly productive. Um, yeah. <laughs> you never know. Other, yeah, other than in that climate, alienate you greatly from a lot yeah. of other people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what are you going to do? I, I really found this progress fascinating. British politics never cease to just like blow my mind <laughs> just a little bit. It's like, hmm, interesting. Never would have thought that would have happened. Mm. Um, okay, so back to Turkey. He, This is where it starts to get a little confusing because he hops around all over the place. Correct me if I'm wrong, Dan. He is basing this entire analysis of Turkey around the murders of, I think, like 14, 13, 14, 15 people Um I'm just going to say 14, about 14 communists in Turkey um, 
during the early days of Turkey as such forming and like the downfall of the Ottoman Empire at a time when I think like two months after these communists were all murdered, um, the Soviet Union would sign a like treaty of friendship and commercial activity or something like that with Turkey as such. And so he's kind of trying to explain, well, hang on, wait a minute. Why was the Soviet Union being so friendly to Turkey at a time when communists were being rounded up, murdered, uh, arrested, thrown in prison, um, not really legally allowed to have their politics out in the open? Why was this like not really even in the Soviet press? Why did it seem like the Comintern wanted not why did it seem like the Comintern explicitly told communists in Turkey to support the Kemalist regime while the Kemalist regime was rounding these people up? And so that's kind of seems like the fundamental crux of where his research began and then where we get his bombshell of the Soviet Union doing things that bourgeois states do, right? So I think that's kind of where it comes from. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, he, he starts this piece by saying he was in, maybe he was already, already familiar with these events or maybe he was introduced to them, but like he was asked a question about, as you say, the sort of like the murder in early 1921 of 14 members of the Central Committee of the Turkish Communist Party, not to be mistaken for the People's Communist Party of Turkey or the official <laughs> Communist Party of Turkey. I love this. We'll get onto this in a bit. <laughs> um, including the aforementioned uh, Mustafa Sufi, um, who was... Um, it, it, this essay doesn't cover his early history. All it says is, I think, is that he was um, sent to... Um, well, what is now Azerbaijan initially by the Soviet Union um, to sort of like try and pull together the pieces of the left and sort of like try and um, compose slash recompose the Communist Party with explicit um, uh, instruction to further to various degrees Soviet interests in Turkey. So in some ways, this person was in... I sort of feel like a, I wouldn't say a Soviet agent, but somebody who was part of the broader Soviet Union's effort to it to engage in geopolitics on its southern border. Um, and so, as you say, yeah, we can maybe get onto the circumstances of these murders in a bit, but like um, he and um, uh, numerous other members of the Central Committee were killed immediately before the signing of a trade deal um part of uh mustafa sufi's approach to kamal ataturk was the promise of um offering soviet aid in the form of weapons to help him in his sort of like rev um, independence war against uh greek occupation of uh parts of turkey backed by the uk um which kind of brings up the broader perspective right like uh, here we are sort of like a reduced um, the Ottoman Empire is defeated in the Second World War much of its holdings are carved First up War. First World War sorry <laughs> much of its holdings are carved up by the various um, victorious powers we sort of already know I think I already do anyway you only have to look at a map of the Middle East to see how it was very clearly just like lines were drawn on a map and sort of chopped up and all of these sort of like present day states in the Middle East were just sort of protectorates of various different parts of uh, elements of the Western powers. Um, there were also, there was also like a Greek occupying force in parts of um, Western Turkey and in Istanbul was occupied, I think, by the British. Um, 
and in some respects also there were portions of um uh the sort of like northern expanse of what had been turkey and the ottoman empire that were held now by the soviet union right sort of like we're talking about azerbaijan um parts of armenia so also a lot of this sort of like a lot of the politicking that goes on in this period some of the occasions when turkey becomes less favorable to the ussr is when there are questions of okay which of these pieces of the former um Ottoman Empire that they would like to include in a greater Turkey, which of them are going to, are they going to be able to get back from Russia, which are they are which ones aren't they? Um so part of this the sort of like the 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 uh well I suppose what I should say is uh what the author of this piece did in re, in in the pro, in approaching his research into this was discover that rather than there just being this one peculiar moment where the Soviet Union had nothing to say when the Central Committee of the Turkish Communist Party was killed. But actually, there's a much broader history here of um, multiple occasions when the Soviet Union continued to make outreaches toward Ataturk's Turkey, even though there are periods of repression. And um, the flip side of that, there are periods of time where um, Ataturk was... um, took efforts to seem like he was being quite um, moderate in his approach to socialist and communist groups in Turkey and made them legal and sort of like acquitted people who had been imprisoned and this kind of thing. Um, So um, Golden is a uh, sort of broader thesis is actually there's a much more complicated thing going on just this one event in early 1921. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's all the ferment that like, I think it's important to understand where Ataturk is coming from because the Ottoman Empire prior to World War I had been in decline for a very long period of time um, and had kind of been in terms of like, you know, the typical metrics that we usually use in terms of like progress had been falling behind Europe for quite some time. It's still by the time World War I, there was a very large peasantry. Um, he may, he gives through various Balkan wars in the Balkans and um, uh, various other kind of what are they called? Uh, agreements between nations, treaties and things like that. Um, by the time that World War I began, the Ottoman Empire had lost, he says, 83% of its land and 63% of its population in the Balkans by 1913, which is pretty insane. And so kind of around 1908, you get this ferment of people that we know of as the Young Turks and the kind of, was it the committee, the CUP, the Committee of Union and Progress? Was yeah. that what they were called? Yeah. So these are basically just like positivist technocrats who want to come in, build up the national bourgeoisie, build up uh, um, industry, uh, but do it in a way that is kind of reminiscent of, you know, technocrats that you see in other places during around the similar time, whether that's in Mexico during their revolution or um, even in Russia, honestly, and China. Um, so they really wanted to kind of not so much as the communists would like drag their country into the 20th century, um, but they really wanted to start to build up industry and make themselves like, you know, make the Ottoman Empire like strong again. Unfortunately, they lose pretty badly in World War One, um, And so there kind of is this general question of well, what is Turkey even going to be? What is what is Turkey? Is Turkey just going to be Anatolia? Is Turkey going to go into Armenia? Is it going to go into Azerbaijan? Is it going to go? Is it still going to have Istanbul? All of these questions are around. And the two most important people are Enver Pasha and Kemal Pasha. Kemal Pasha 
winds up, as we've said, becoming Kamal Ataturk. So he winds up winning. Um, just a little bit more background on this is that basically Enver Pasha, he kind of had a lot of military losses in World War One. was maybe not liked by the entire establishment, but both him and Kamal were both members of the CUP and the Young Turk kind of milieu, this positivist technocratic milieu. So at the end of it all, the Soviet Union realizes that they're going to be dealing with a Turkey that is still kind of feeling out, a post-World War I Turkey that is still feeling out its borders, that really wants to build up its national bourgeoisie, and that is, at the end of it all, going to be led by Kemal Ataturk, Kemal Pasha, right? And so they're going to be dealing with these positivist technocrats. And this kind of comes back to the ideology of the time in the common turn, which was like, in nations that uh, uh, are vaguely anti-imperialist, and as you said, Turkey at this time was categorized as anti-imperialist because it was fighting more wars against Greece to figure out both of their borders in the post-World War I war, uh, order. And Greece was backed by Britain and a lot of other um, imperialist powers. They were basically like, we need to back the national bourgeoisie here so that they can build up their uh, industry so that we can then do a kind of old school Marxist approach of first this stage of history and then this stage of history, sit through that one and then we can get socialism, right? So they realize they're going to be dealing with Kamal Ataturk. And as you say, they kind of make these uh, attempts at kind of wooing him. But Kamal Ataturk, it seems like for this entire time, even when he's being friendly with the Soviet Union, is like, I fucking hate communists. I'm not going to like allow them a real place in my country, let alone even like anything beyond unions that are almost entirely controlled by at least the ideology of the state. Not a very friendly man to the working class. But at the same time, Turkey wasn't exactly Russia in their revolution. And I really found this fascinating because there was working class ferment rising up, especially in Istanbul and some of the other coastal cities. There was a sizable proletarian class. And so this added another layer to an incredibly complicated story, which is just that, you know, it comes out and it tells you that history is complicated. It's never as easy as Marxists like to tell you that it is, because even a lot of these working class movements were a bit reactionary. So needless to say, for the communist organizing in Turkey at the time, some of them with the help of the Soviet Union, some of them without, um, it was always going to be an uphill battle, I think. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I kind of wish there was more on the sort of just general um work there's sort of references to various working class ferment and various strike waves and certain sort of industrial organizations um there's an extent to which uh, like it takes a while for these organizations to develop right that like he says that there's quite there's a sort of wave of industrial action that comes with the rise of the young turks in 1908 and their sort of like revolutionary takeover um but the working class of turkey is generally without uh, institutions that in the West you would recognize as being normal uh, working class institutions, you know, like trade unions, for example. Um, so there's a lot of sort of like potential. There is a small but growing and sort of like heavily localized working class. Um, and then there's sort of like the influx of um, uh, socialist and communist ideas that come from Western Europe through various minority groups. Because it's worth one of the things that's worth really saying is like um, the Ottoman Empire as it existed was incredibly um, diverse. It was multicultural and didn't really wasn't like riven with nationalist lines. Like one of the things he points out, the author of this points out is that 
nationalism is quite a relatively new um, phenomena. And it's sort of like through an engagement with um, sort of like German, but some sort of German romantic nationalism, but then also sort of pan um, Slavic nationalism intersecting with the sort of general declining fortunes of the Ottoman Empire, right? Um, creates a sort of intellectual movement in Turkey, which is initially um, minded toward sort of like pan-Turkic nationalism, i.e. sort of maintaining the Ottoman Empire as it exists. And I couldn't really work out whether um, Kamal Pasha's approach to this is um, intentional or sort of opportunistic when he seems to affirm not a pan-Turkic nationalism but rather just a nationalism for turkey in anatolia kind of thing so like a reduced nation state of what we now have as present-day turkey um whether that was a sort of an ideological approach or whether that was a commitment to the reality of the already collapsing ottoman empire but um sort of an important feature of that distinction between um enver pasha and kamal pasha is that um commitment either to a sort of greater Turkey in Ottoman Empire or rather as a reduced um, Turkey. Um, I think it'd be quite funny to go over the sort of exploits of Enver Pasha. You sort of talked about him a little bit as being one of the more prominent young Turks, right? Um, But I think also he's quite integral to this story because he's the first person to to begin thinking about maybe making overtures toward the Soviet Union for support in his own sort of like personal ambitions in personal yeah, yeah but, <laughs> which i think so, like, is a really important point that it was the first overtures to the soviet union were just him wanting to rule turkey and that's yeah. where it came from and it was like well he wasn't going to get it from the imperialist powers you know yeah yeah, yeah. It, it took me a long time to real like there was clearly a kind of like um conflict of personal ambition i think between kamal pasha and enver pasha um but a degree of commonality in goal as well. So I suppose it's worth saying that they both were nationalists and had nationalist ambitions. Maybe they had slightly different conceptions of um, the nature of the state that they wanted to create. Um, I think Enver Pasha, even after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, was still hoping to like um, refound a greater Turkey. And his great inspiration was, I know, I'll try and seek support for that project from the Soviet Union, and maybe they will back me against um kamal pasha kamal ataturk um in my ambitions and so he sort of like in the immediate aftermath of the of the collapse of the ottoman empire he's like given a death sentence presumably by uh the british i don't know whether it would have been some turkish authority that did that uh, but he fled to germany and spent some time in germany before going to the soviet union um, and then he sort of starts to then sort of like create this ideology which suggests, well, there aren't actually that many differences between communism and sort of like broader Islamic morality, right? Communism is just sort of about sort of sharing and kindness in a way that um, uh, sort of broader sort of like Muslim morality was understood to be at the time. Um and one of the more interesting things about this is actually it's a whole load of ex-Young Turks who end up forming the Communist Party of Turkey. Like, initially, its initial founding um, in, uh, um, I think it's the capital of what is now Azerbaijan, I can't remember, Baku. Baku. So they they sort of formed the Communist Party 
of Turkey in Baku, but it's mostly just all of these like nationalists with really like dubious communist credentials. Um, uh, but and, and he also starts um, making approaches to Kemal Ataturk, being like, "Look, this kind of makes sense. You know, we can leverage this support." Um, there is advantage to be gained here by having a relationship to the Soviet Union, um, which, and there, there are even quotes of Kamal Ataturk making similar gestures toward the compatibility of um, Islam with communism. Uh, obviously, as you said, Kamal Pasha sort of like um, doesn't succeed in his ambitions in the end, ends up leading some kind of rebellion in um, in the Caucasus and is killed by the Red Army. Um, but it's from him that the sort of like the beginnings of this relationship and the nature of this relationship start, I guess. Yeah. And I wasn't sure if that's where, so, so there are a number of different factions that Kamal Ataturk has to kind of deal with to kind of fully cement his power in and fully cement Turkey as a nation. And one of them is the green army, which we referenced a little bit before, which seemed to just be this loose coalition of, um, mainly like i don't know if you'd call them islamic nationalists or what but they were certainly um they were called the green army because green was supposed to be the color of islam but they were also heavily influenced by kind of communist ideology in a way that you wouldn't find now right so it's exactly what you're saying it was this threat to kamal ataturk's power led by a number of different i suppose you might even just call them warlords honestly in central anatolia who held some sway and who preached basically the kind of more moralistic uh, uh, aspects of both Islam and communism in terms of, hey, you know, you, the nascent working class in, in these various cities, have it pretty bad. Um, everybody should share. Uh, this morality of love and sharing is shared by Islam and by communism. We should both we should all be the ones in power, right? Instead of the bosses, right? And also it should all be like, you know, very fundamentally Islamic. And the ways, the different ways in which Ataturk dealt with these various factions, I thought was really fascinating. So the way he dealt with the Green Army was just by forming a basically like puppet communist party, the official communist party of Turkey, and just completely, you know, stealing their thunder. And basically a lot of the kind of main ideologues of the Green Army went over to the Turkish Communist Party where Ataturk could keep an eye on them, right? And then there's also the People's Party, which is just kind of like a vaguely progressive, hey, the workers should get a better share of what they're getting now, right? Not necessarily communists, although I'd imagine there were some socialists organizing in there. And the way that Ataturk dealt with them was just by stealing their rhetoric and, you know, not ever planning on doing anything about it. Like, hey, yeah, the workers under the Ottoman Empire did get a bad shake. And because he was Kamal Ataturk, he was the hero of World War One, right? People listened to him. And nobody listens to the to the People's Party. So, again, this is the ferment that the Soviet Union was tossed into in terms of who are we going to be dealing with? What is it going to look like? What is it that Kamal Ataturk actually believes? As well as other bigger questions around kind of nations around the Caucasus, specifically Georgia, where in the common turn, they basically said Georgia should have self-determination, imperialism, no more. Whereas Ataturk was like, but what about if they were part of Turkey, though? So there was the sticking point there. And again, as we see, like, this is one of the places where when rhetoric sped up about Georgia uh, on both sides, then the Soviet Union and Turkey would have kind of like an angry relationship. And then when things kind of cooled off, 
and Ataturk was forced to deal with something, say, in you know, the west of Turkey, uh, the Soviet Union was able to kind of be nicer to him and be like, well, maybe we give you some guns that you will later use to kill communists, you know? Yeah. Um, like, so yeah, we've got the, we've got as many, isn't it? We've got the communist party of Turkey formed by, um, the young Turks and we've got the official communist party <laughs> formed by Kamal Ataturk, um, partly, uh, to appease the Soviet Union, um, to sort of like tout Turkey's like communist potential, and then also, as you say, to sort of like uh, corrupt and derail sort of more genuine left wing movements. Um, I guess it's worth saying that one of the things that Mustafa Sufi does this is the guy who was sent by the Soviet Union to um, begin building up the Communist Party in Turkey. One of the things he does when he gets to Baku is to sort of like purge the local party of all of these sort of like former young Turk unionists kind of thing. So one of the things that does happen is the communist party of Turkey does sort of become um, a more authentic communist party. One in the vein of sort of like the Bolsheviks and the, and the, the sort of like communist party of the Soviet union. Um, And it's into that communist party that are also attracted uh, numerous other sort of like significant figures on the left. There's a group who uh, were exiled in in Germany during the German Revolution, who sort of like um, were part of a Turkish party of workers and farmers, I think, who become communist um, and uh, move to become significant figures in the communist party in Turkey when they return. Although they're really interested because they seem to have like really um, essentialized the idea of uh, the intelligentsia being really vital to communism kind of thing. This is some idea that they've come across um, from a French author and they sort of like seem to me like quite a comical group probably of like uh, academics and intellectuals who think that actually it's they who um, are going to be the fundamental part in um, provoking the communist revolution. And then uh, there are also, I think, Goldner's favourite people grouping in this are the left communists who, um, as you would imagine from less communists, have much greater contact with the real working class and are also become a constituent part of the Communist Party of um, of Turkey. Uh so that's sort of that's the kind of like makeup of the Communist Party as we're getting into uh, the early part of 1920. Um, as I was saying before, like Mustafa Sufi has been sort of making these outreaches to um, Ataturk on behalf of the Soviet Union, being the funnel through which all of these um, offers of aid, uh, gold, um, military aid um, have been made. Um, and he, he's also attempting to gain from Ataturk a status for the Communist Party, which has some kind of like official uh, position within Turkish politics. He wants to get the confirmation that, okay, you can be a legitimate political party. Um, and this is coming up to the sort of like main uh, point that started off this whole essay is this idea of like, Ataturk, the sort of like pretend that the murders of the common the leaders of the Communist Party potentially it's a bit unclear, potentially um 
done by supporters, sort of like Kamalist supporters of Ataturk, um, although it's never really made quite clear. Um, when you look it up, when you look it up online, it's just like Wikipedia is just like the boatman did it. It's like the boatman yeah, killed yeah. like fifteen <laughs> <Yeah>. people. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, yeah, that, yeah. I think I read that where it was like the the person who encouraged them to. T- so ba- basically, they were on their way to Wist- uh, to Ankara. I think. I think they were um, running away basically because yeah, they saw that things well, were I think not as good they, as they, they thought. Yeah, they 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 received some kind of overture from Ataturk. They were on their way to Ankara. Um, but then there had been some kind of geopolitical shift. I think um, the the fortunes of the Kamalists in their revol- in their independence war against the British were um, on the rise, and there was this desire within the Kamalists to um, kick up a ferment against the communists and try and drive the communists out of uh, Turkey. And so there was a sort of this popular. It wasn't very clearly explained how this actually happened, but there was sort of like a, um, a a sort of like storm was kicked up in the press against the communists. There was a sort of mob that formed to prevent them from making their way to Ankara. And they were sort of like, so they turned around and were using various routes to try and escape. Um, and one of these was coming off of a train and being encouraged onto a boat to get somewhere else. And as you say, like... Um, the official line was the person who encouraged them to take his boat to escape was the one that killed them. But um, when he denied it, he was killed. So um, it's not mm. entirely clear. Well, yeah, I guess what happened. happened is they were this. This felt a bit like a corkboard and red string moment yes. from the author because <laughs> yes. he was like the official story is that they're on the boat and a motorboat overtakes them, and then next thing you know, they're all dead. And basically, I guess the boat, the guy who was did the ferry, the ferryman had like a reputation of being kind of like a scumbag. So the official line was kind of like, well, maybe he just like wanted the like gold or whatever that they were carrying the like money or, you know, and when they refused to give it over, killed them. But it's also like, well, then what was this extra boat? Why was there no reaction on behalf of the Kamalist regime when like these, you know, people that he didn't really want in his country, but at the same time, like pretty vitally important group for geopolitical reasons. Like you kind of, well, this is the whole thing behind the behind this murder, right? And why he's talking about it is because that you would think that the Kamalists couldn't just kill 15 prominent communists right after the Soviet Union uh, won its revolution and formed itself as a nation and was one of your biggest allies. You think you couldn't just kill all of these people. But the kind of reason he talks about this murder is because it, for the first time, proved to the world to different bourgeois regimes that no, in fact, actually you can kill communists in your country. You can throw them in prison. You can be actively hostile to them. And the Soviet Union won't do anything basically because the Soviet Union as it exists as the nation of the Soviet Union has its own interests as a system. And even though you would think, you know, global revolution, especially in this like vitally important uh, uh, nation on the Bosphorus would be in its best interest. Actually, at that time, it was fighting for its own survival and it needed this kind of off again, on again alliance with Turkey. So, you know, he also says at one point, he's like the boatman uh, uh, 
it's an incredibly funny footnote. He was like the the boatman threatened when he was arrested by authorities to spill the beans on who actually killed these communists, and then he was murdered. The way he phrases it is, he's like the boatman threatened to spill the beans, and then Lauren Goldner's like, "Whose beans?" <laughs> I don't know why he phrased it like that. I just thought that was really funny. But yeah, again, these murders just prove that it's like you could have a developmental regime in your country actively hostile to communists. And the Soviet Union would turn the other way, look the other direction. Yeah. I think what is really was really worth reiterating that I learned from this piece is the degree to which Kamal Ataturk was really a pioneer in this particular type of approach toward dealing with both um, the Soviet Union, but also the West. In this instance, it's Western Europe and Great Britain, but later into this century it's going to become the relationships between the US and the Soviet Union right um if you are a sort of like post-colonial um a, a leader of a regime that's looking to develop economically one of the best things to do really is to play these two superpowers off one another um and as you and as you say also the um the ability to also like turn against the Soviet Union if you need to, um, playing purely for personal, not personal, but like maybe personal, but also um, the the specific fortunes of the country in which you're leading kind of thing. Um, Ataturk was one of the first people to play this geopolitical game against supposed superpowers, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it's all it's all interesting. I mean, there's so much more to get into that I don't uh-huh. think I was really worried. We haven't even mentioned Husnu and Hakliogu, who were basically like the left and right of the actual People's Communist Party. Hakliogu, the left wing guy, basically gets arrested for a lot of this and is just in jail. And Husnu just winds up becoming a Stalinist, <laughs> which is kind of funny. <laughs> I mean, they are your trajectories in the 30s, right? And you exactly. either become a Stalinist or you get killed or sent to. <laughs> what was funny about this to me was the number of people who were active on the left of the sort of like communist movement in Turkey who ended up in Soviet camps. Like yeah. so many people just ended up being like deported to the Soviet Union and ended up in camps there kind of thing. If yeah. they were killed or imprisoned or um, yeah. driven into exile or uh, became a minority sect in Turkey itself. Well, and that's and that's one of the kind of bombshells that he talks about, because there's these official histories of the Communist Party of Turkey that nobody really ever reads or knows about. But then he says that he was he came across this one pamphlet where it was the left of the actual Communist Party, the People's Communist Party in Turkey. Right. Putting out a pamphlet arguing against the Stalinists who they kind of imply are more or less also on Kemal's payroll, because at a time when all of these people got arrested, there was one time where. Kamal was just like, all right, fuck it. We're arresting everybody in the Communist Party. And uh, the guy, Husnu, who wound up becoming a Stalinist, they imply had a bit of a tip off because he got out of town somehow, like, you know, a day before all of these arrests came down. And Hekliogo, he basically just gets arrested um, and doesn't become much of a player. And the People's Communist Party gets completely neutered. And, they, you know, it, it's really interesting, though, because I don't know, maybe now we can get into a conversation of like, what was the Soviet Union supposed to do, right? Because there does seem like there was this period of a year, or maybe a couple of years, where the People's Communist Party had mass support, not mass support, but they had support from the people of Turkey in certain regions, and they were very combative. And it seems like they were certainly maybe able to do more than they did had they had the support of the Soviet Union. I mean, 
by the time Hakliogu gets out of prison, um, again, Hakliogu is like the left wing of the communist movement there. Um, the party is, has lost all of its leaders and is completely dispersed and working class kind of um, energy has been sucked up into these kind of really conservative unions that rely on kind of nationalism and xenophobia to kind of get workers out of this kind of internationalist ideology and to kind of put them as, hey, you know who the real problem is? Well, it's the Greeks that are in, working in your factories as scabs, or you know, it's the Jews or it's the Armenians. And of course, as you said, these minority groups were the ones that were actually propagating socialist um, ideas the most. So it's kind of like, well, what could the Soviet Union have done? I mean, I'm tempted to say not much. I'm tempted to basically just say that the Soviet Union in its relationship with Turkey kind of had to have this kind of reactionary anti-imperialist ideology because they were doing their best to kind of, you know, keep their head above water. This is really early days of the Soviet Union here. But I think that if you take that for granted, then that puts you in the position of saying that there was a fundamental flaw with the way that the Soviet Union actually operated, which goes back before even stepping onto the global stage, which was them having to step onto the global stage to begin with. And that's kind of what Lauren Goldner is saying here. I don't know if I necessarily agree that it's like if the revolution had been won in Germany, we would all be in high stage communism by now. I don't know necessarily if that's what he's saying either, but he is saying that's where it all kind of goes wrong. That's where you get crunched at. And that's where you get all of this other stuff, the Anglo-Soviet, you know, um, trade deal and all this. But again, like, I don't know, it doesn't seem like there was much that the Soviet Union could have done differently solely because had they just told Turkey to fuck off, Turkey would have just, you know, I don't know. If, 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 if socialists have to engage in geopolitics in a bourgeois sense at all, it seems like it's probably going to go wrong. You know what I mean? It seems like they're going to have to make uh, sacrifices, whether that's, okay, you can arrest some communists. Okay, you can murder some communists. And that is kind of like where the revolution goes wrong in Turkey or in different, different countries, like, you know, the ones that are mentioned in their developmental regimes at the beginning of this essay. But I do think that this points to a more fundamental flaw with the actual Soviet model. And it wasn't necessarily, well, if only less people listen to Karl Radek, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. They were, but like, it's like at the end of the day, the common turn was telling people to support Kamal, you know, and to support Ataturk. And no, we need to build up industry before we can even think about socialism. So I don't know if that necessarily speaks to the bad people in charge of making these decisions so much mm -hmm. as it does this systemic flaw. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's difficult to look at this history and decide, well, everything uh, after the failure of the German Revolution and the wider European Revolution and the general isolation of the Soviet Union, everything was a bust and the entire history of the Soviet Union was always going to be a failure and there was no prospect for a meaningful political project. Um, it's a, quite a sort of like maybe fatalistic approach to be like, okay, there was, there was nothing that could have happened. Um, clearly, it was a very pragma pragmatic relationship right i don't think they were particularly oh i'd like to assume they weren't particularly um conned by ataturk and others into thinking well, they that... didn't like each other that's no. that's one thing <laughs> um but i mean from the my understanding of the history that i've gotten from reading this right like what were some of the motivators there was the the fact that the UK in particular, but other European powers were involved in 
directly involved in um, trying to fight the Russian civil war against the Soviet Union. Although in this, it's said that the British um, stopped their involvement in that in 1920. Maybe that's a direct boots on the ground involvement in that war. And actually, obviously, they continue to finance it. Um, but if if that direct threat from the UK had diminished in 1920, and also if certain victories in um, the Russian Civil War made it possible for the Soviet Union to more properly secure their southern, southern border in the Caucasus, which meant that Turkish... Um, advancement into that region was significantly less likely it does sort of feel like there are there were there were certain things that happened prior to these murders and then also it's worth saying after this there's a constant back and forth of like the the turkish want to make outreaches toward the soviet union so they're going to be really somewhat more friendly toward communists oh no that that relationship has soured and actually they're going to um, crack down again so it's not just this one instant but there's a constant back and forth which I must admit I don't really understand the ins and outs of to explain fully but like um, it's a very complicated uh, an ongoing relationship one which obviously as soon as Ataturk actually takes control of Turkey um, and wins the civil war and the republic is founded in 1922 or something um, takes a sort of like uh, anti-communist um, takes this history to its inevitable anti-communist conclusion, I suppose. Um, but I sort of wonder whether there are certain things that are happening geopolitically um, that motivate the the early Soviet Union's attitude toward um, its outreach toward Turkey that didn't necessarily need to include that um, very intentionally turning a blind eye to what was happening. That said, what would they have actually done? You know, I don't know. Like they, they were presumably weren't in any position to um, stop these things from happening, perhaps. But yeah, well, it's not like they didn't try. You know, like what's his name, Mustafa Sufi, being sent to Baku basically by the Comintern shows that they were trying to at least create some kind of ferment. So I mean, maybe it was just that they put too much trust in Kamal. Um, and his willingness to allow communists to just operate legally. I mean, I, you know, that doesn't seem like that was ever going to happen. So I don't know. A lot, lot of questions. I mean, it, it comes down to like broader abstract questions about uh, geopolitical machinations. But then it's also like, well, what if those, what if Mustafa Sufi and those guys just didn't get on that boat? You know, what if they went somewhere else? What if they didn't make that trip to Ankara? What if they were like, actually, this kind of seems sketchy that he took several months to respond to us. And then when he finally did respond was just like incredibly vague about like, well, now is not the time to be doing such crazy things, but come on, come meet me. Let's, let's see what's going on. So I don't know. It's hard to know. The Soviet Union was trying perhaps they could have strategized a little bit better about creating a working class revolution in Turkey, but they also had other things on their mind at this time, which I think is fair to say. So they didn't exactly have a lot of resources. So hard to, hard to know other than the inevitable outcome of this, which is inarguable is a, these developmental regimes realized that they could kill communists whenever they wanted to and still maintain good relations with the Soviet union and B that, you know, it seemed like the Soviet Union was kind of more or less 
now pointing towards being part of the global kind of like bourgeois geopolitical order. And it was going to have to try and find its place there. And, you know, what does that mean if you're a communist revolutionary in these countries? I don't know. It means maybe don't, you can't, you couldn't have ever really relied fully on the Soviet Union to have your back. Um, because they wouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) And the general takeaway, I suppose, is that, um, all bourgeois governments are generally created equal and to be mistrusted equally and pinning your hopes in one that it might in some way disadvantage or damage the other um, is perhaps a foolish game and the sort of like fundamentals of Marxist approaches to anti-imperialism are flawed and they were evidently flawed from the beginning as evidence with this piece, I guess. Yeah, he's got history. one great he's got one great footnote in here when he's talking about people supporting um, uh, reactionary anti anti imperialism from a left wing perspective because it's anti imperialism, dude. You just don't get it. He says this reminds me of Kenneth Rexroth's quip that Leninism had a genius for coining terms such as critical support democratic centralism and revolutionary trade unionism whereby the noun always won out over the adjective that's so good critical support that just means support revolutionary trade unionism trade unionism and democratic centralism we've talked about this one before centralism (laughs) very good yeah. Nice. So if you hear somebody saying they have critical support for Vladimir Putin, you can write that person off. <laughs> <laughs> or sit them down and explain the intricacies of Turco-Soviet Union relations in the immediate aftermath of World War One. I'm sure they'd appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what are you going to do? All right. Well, well that, one, that one was very interesting. I would kind of like to read a bit more from this book. It seems uh, yeah. really, really good. Yeah. Um, he does the reason I said is this guy a communizer is because he does edit a journal called Insurrectionary Notes, and I was like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yeah, there you go. All right. Well, we might be back we'll with an episode in two weeks. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> we might be with uh, back with an episode in two weeks. We might not. We'll see. I'm going back to America. Dan, you're coming out here, and um, it might be a little while. But maybe we'll have something. Yeah, we'll maybe see. we'll take a week off or maybe we'll find something to do. Yeah, we'll find something. Anyway. All righty. Well, thank you very much for this, Dan. I really enjoyed this. Reactionary anti-imperialism. It seems to be the only anti-imperialism that is around these days. So what are you going to do? Hopefully one, something will change. When we get our universal conscription, then we can we can really be anti-imperialist from within the <laughs> core. So what are you going to do? All righty. Well, thank you so much, Dan. Uh, I have to pack because I'm leaving... Yeah, soon. And I have not packed at all. So, um, I'll leave that. And, um, thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks, everybody. Bye. See ya. The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more commie discussion. Till next time.